bro, 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 bro. I know there's only two of you, but I said it four times because I wanted your attention. Doubly strong, just like everybody's got their attention now. They know 10 Bell Pod's back. The ratings, they're through the roof. But they can be even higher. And listen to old Vinny Rue right here. If you want ratings. Bro, listen. I think we need to start this episode off with a bang. I say we all pull guns on each other. We all pull guns on each other. And we all say, listen, you either listen to this podcast or else. And that's the bottom line because my Glock 316 said so. <laughs> I'm just saying. This is good. It's, it's a mind, literally a mind-blowing idea because a bullet will go through your skull and put your mind blown to the wall. <laughs> all right. No follow-up? Nothing? Nothing around? We just had Vin Sousa <laughs> walk in and drop some truth bombs on us. Thanks, Finny. Thanks for stopping in. No problem. No problem. Go Mets, mostly. Yeah, I got to go watch the 30 for 30 and the 1986 Mets. All right, all right, Vince. Vince. Good to see you as always. Thank you for the tips. Thank you for let, giving us an idea on what to do now that 10 Bell Pod's back. Guys, are you going to say thanks? To I hate that greasy-haired motherfucker. It. I swear to God, if I ever see him, I'm going <laughs> to wring his fucking neck. <laughs> get 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 out of here, Jim Cornette. Get out of here. Sorry, guys. He blows in every once in a while. I I find it funny that Vince and Jim Cornette walked in the same space, but they walked in and out like different doors at the same time. <laughs> I, they, we were very close to having a podcast exclusive. We were about to have a debate with Vince Russo and Jim Cornette all of a sudden, guys. <laughs> Ten Bell Pod is back. We almost had an exclusive Vince Russo, Jim Cornette debate or murder scene, whichever you want to <laughs> want to call it. Passing ships. All right, hello and welcome back to Ten Bell Pod. I'm Nick Alexander, joined as always by the loose camping Jake Manning. That one was a stretch. I'm sorry. No, I fucking love it. I, lo- I love <laughs> you to death. And I, I, I just had some artwork come through for my new T-shirt, which is probably available at ProWrestlingTees.com/backslash/manscapemanning. So, like, don't worry, you will get Nick Alexander premium content T-shirts very soon <laughs> with such quality things as the loose camping. Jake Manning. And uh, if you haven't heard by now, we got a new guy, Mr. Tyler Wood. Hey, thanks again for not firing me after last week. I know it was a big, <laughs> it's a big, a lot of backstage heat on me there, but thanks for keeping me on, guys. Well, when you come in with a ball of fire of energy right out of the gate of a podcast, <laughs> we can't, we can't deny it. We can't deny it. LC, you have a connection with Jim Cornette. I don't know. Like it's, it's, I, I, fuck I his got wife my connections with Vinny Rue. <laughs> <laughs> Here I was worried about doing another bit because it might get me fired, but I don't think that one's going to get me fired. Leave it in, Nicholas. (laughs) That's going to get a fat contribution to your 401k. That's some premium content. (laughs) All right, get your guns out and point them at somebody named Steve because today we're covering Four Horsemen, Heart Foundation member, light heavyweight champion, and Hollywood blonde flying Brian Pillman. Super cool, unique. The more I think about him, I don't know why where quite to place him in history, but I 
I feel like I need to also look back on some of his earlier stuff too. I know way too much about the later stuff, like all the loose cannon stuff, and that's been analyzed to death. But I'd love to just solely zero in on some of his earlier work and really examine that and also place it in its context. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that very shortly and the importance of it. I know a lot of people talk about the loose cannon stuff, but I, I think that only paints half the picture of who Brian Billman is. So I did not get a chance to watch, uh, being born in 1994, I did not get a chance to watch any of Brian Pillman as it happened, and the majority of what I know him from is the Loose Cannon stuff that I've kind of been able to look back through and pick through, and I am astounded by the turnaround that he had from the beginning of his career to the end of it, and uh, we'll go a little bit more into detail later on what I mean by that, but very interesting guy. Brian William Pillman was born May 22, 1962 in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was part of a uh, pretty good-sized family, having three sisters and a brother. His dad unfortunately died of a heart attack when Pillman was just three months old. Around two years old, Brian began having trouble breathing, so his mom took him to the doctor. The doctor found that Brian had polyps growing on his vocal cords, and since he was so young, these polyps were blocking his airway. Uh, They referred him to a specialist, but while waiting on the appointment, Brian had a rough night where he almost died, had to get an emergency tracheotomy, and this is the first of 30 to 40-ish medical procedures that would all lead to that gruff Brian Pillman voice. I I I can't do impressions. But imagine him having a gruff voice as like a preschooler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you done with shoots and ladders yet? <laughs> <laughs> like him just rolling up. Oh, you're not done yet? I'm going to take it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, teacher, for the juice box. I appreciate that so much. Just sitting over like a grizzled vet already <laughs> as a preschooler, like just sucking on a Capri Sun. If they had Capri Suns when he was a child, I doubt it. So, just lead paint. Just lead paint. That's it. Due to his medical issues, Pillman obviously spent a lot of his early childhood in and out of the hospitals, and he would have a few more brushes with death just as a kid. Despite all this, went on to grow up and play sports. He was a uh, super good hockey player before switching over to football. And in his prime, Brian was a very generous five foot ten and a very generous two twenty five. So he definitely had his work cut out for him to make it in the football biz, but he fucking did. He played both sides of the ball in high school. He showed a lot of heart and intensity. He ended up making all state. With that, got no scholarship offers. So he ended up walking on to the Miami University of Ohio, where he earned his spot as a defensive lineman, despite being absurdly undersized at the D1 level for a nose tackle. It's very funny that you listed all that because that was almost my same exact resume. (laughs) I, too, was generously 5'10". I, too, was generously 200 pounds and also played both ways and defensive linemen and almost played at not a D1 school, but I I almost played at a Division III school. I was going to play football and do track and field at Division III school and... I uh, was going to get like a minimal like book scholarship, but it's it's very funny. Those paths being very similar and attitudes being very similar. And I obviously didn't do that, but trying to have that mentality, like I know what it's like to be that person and it takes a concern amount of mental strength, determination to get to do all those things. And 
I can't imagine how many times he got told no and that's not possible and and even telling himself like this is this is a silly thing to pursue so for him to pursue it the way he did at a division one level is very commendable in college Brian set school records for tackles for losses he was an 82 second team AP All-American getting beat out of a first-team All-American spot by fellow pro wrestling superstars Reggie White and William the Refrigerator Perry. On that first team, you also had Bo Jackson, Steve Young, Ron Rivera, so that's a pretty uh, pretty competitive year. (laughs) I don't know much about football, but I know Ron Rivera, that's a former head coach of the Panthers, current head coach of the Washington football generals, right? (laughs) Commanders. Commanders, yes, Uh, yes. I, I like that you ooed over Ron Rivera. <laughs> you're not fucking you, Bo Jackson. I yeah, don't know exactly. About exactly. Bo Jackson. Me and Nick, like immediately we said Bo Jackson. Our, our 80s child heart warmed and, and we grew an extra inch because that's what happens when a child of our generation hears the name Bo Jackson. You, on the other fucking hand, like you hear Ron Rivera, I'm like, oh, he was Cam Newton's coach. Dab. Like, what the fuck, man? Like, Bo Jackson. Jackson is the Paul Bunyan of our generation. And for you to get excited about Ron Rivera, old riverboat Ron. I'm mostly just excited I recognized a name. You didn't recognize Bo Jackson? I'm not 400 years old like you guys. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Not even 30 yet. (laughs) I'll be 40 when this podcast drops. Oh, boy. And I may Uh, drop dead. (laughs) Hey everyone, it's Nick from Tim Bell Pod, and I just wanted to say that the only reason I did this podcast was for the money. And I hope each and every one of you goes straight to patreon.com slash Pod, where you can help support the show. There you'll find shirts with our new logo, a bonus content tier, You can even just support the show for as little as $1. And of course, that's assuming you stupid hicks from Insert Hometown can't afford a dollar. Ah, thank your favorite sports team sucks. And if you got a problem with it, you can find me at patreon.com slash 10bellpod. After a great college career, Brian had his sights set on the NFL where the big boys play. See, you don't even understand that reference, Tyler. God damn it. Oh, you also missed a fun little fact. Uh, While he was at the Miami University, he roomed with the current head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, John Harbaugh. Oh, yeah. You guys recognize that name, John Harbaugh? (laughs) Does that ring a bell for you? (laughs) (laughs) Brian went undrafted. So he went and tried out for his hometown Cincinnati Bengals and ended up making the team. He played special teams and would basically sprint down the field and suicide bomb the blocking wedge on kick returns. It was also with the Bengals he made lifelong pals with Bengals strength coach Kim Wood, who plays a pretty big role in the Pillman saga and also sounds like the answer to the question, who's going to eat this gross shit? Kim Wood. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as soon as I saw his name was Wood, I was like, I'm going to put Tyler's joke in here. God, I've been doing that joke a long time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like the first joke uh, out of your mouth when you get like, after I say, please welcome to the stage, Tyler Wood. It's then that joke. <laughs> like, it sets up two callbacks. It's very important to get out early. 
<laughs> but yeah, but him being the suicide guy on the kickoff team, like I think they've changed the rules so it's a, like you have to wait for it to be kicked before they can take off. But like those those special team guys in the NFL, like they are a special breed. They're, they're definitely like locker room guys. Like you keep them around because they're they're gonna push that million dollar contract guy. They're gonna they're gonna work out in the weight room really hard, and they're gonna be full of energy. They're gonna be full of locker room, and if and if they do a, like a couple moves there, it might be the thing that kind of gets people excited. Like, hey, did you see what Billman did out there? Let's go out there and kick ass, you know? Because this guy who's making two hundred thousand dollars a year is kicking ass. This guy's playing with all heart. He ain't doing this shit for the money. He's doing it because he fucking loves football and reminding these big contract guys that it's a team game it's sport it's yeah. it's about emotion and let's go out and do it and this is a fucking game you know like you need you need a good locker room guy like that despite really giving it his all and playing hard he was still undersized for the nfl there's there's only so much you can do when you're playing in a in a league like that he'd eventually lose a spot and next season he'd try out for the bills and was literally the last man cut from the buffalo bills that year he'd end up going to the canadian football league in 86 and there he would get the first of uh, a major ankle injury. While trying to rehab, Kim Wood told him about the Hart family. And that day, his life and pro wrestling would change forever. Brian would begin training at the famed Hart Dungeon. And to detail that experience, we welcome back to the show, friend of the podcast, Stu Hart. Young whippersnapper, but not as young as the other guy, the new guy. See you over there. Hey, man, let, let me have you. Let me have you. Uh, that's what uh, I'm telling you. I'm telling you this is what I used to do with Billman. He came. To, he came to the house. He he knocked on the door. He rang the doorbell, but the doorbell didn't work. He just had the doorbell there, so that way it's more of an alarm. It, 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 the alarm goes off and it notifies me that somebody's at the front. So they keep pushing the fucking button, like the, the doorbell, and I sneak up behind them and I have him. I grab him and I let him go. I see the veins like popping out in their side. Yeah, I did the Brian. I had him locked in. I, I saw. I saw his last breath. I literally saw his last breath. I saw it. I grabbed it and I pushed it back in. Gave him life. People talk about the kiss of life as CPR. No, I say you catch somebody's last breath and push it back inside. That's what you are. This is a, that's what I did. It's training. And eventually, I teamed up with my dipshit son Bruce. <laughs> fucking, fucking nobody likes Bruce, but fucking. Fucking Brian made him look like a million bucks. So I was like, yeah, that's that's a wrestler right there. And uh, not like Luther Lindsay, though. He was the only guy to ever take me. He's a picture of my wallet. The only man ever had me. Don't you have like 40 yeah. kids? Uh, yeah, I have so many kids. So many kids. And everybody I've ever choked out, I consider him my kid. Oh, okay. Like, I've, 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 choked out, I've, I've choked out so many men. They're all my kids. All of them. As soon as, as, soon as I, like, I see the last breath and I push it back inside, I whisper in their ear and go, you're my kid now. All right, good to see you again, Stu. Thanks for, <laughs> for coming back in. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm a little blown up right now. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> I think I just heard Stu Hart. He just he just strangled me in the hall. Oh, <laughs> I guess. I, I, he, like, he strangled me for a while, and I, I went black, and then I, and I woke up again, and he said I was his kid. And I was like, <laughs> I, I think it's just, it was the weirdest thing ever. Jake, congratulations. I, he's, never, he's put his hands on you. That means you've technically trained at the Hart Dungeon. <laughs> I guess so. All right, cool. I could be like one of the, all those Canadian wrestlers from 2007, say I was a Hart Dungeon uh, graduate when really it was just Bruce trying to stretch me exactly. in the basement. the Chris so, Jericho route. Right. Yeah. Not only did Brian get 
training at this a legendary heart dungeon. He was also, once he debuted, working with the likes of the hearts. Uh, yeah, Dynamite and Davey. And on top of this, he would start becoming a big tape nerd. He'd study the Japan guys. He'd study Ric Flair's promos. And of course, he would become fully immersed in the art of the pro wrestling mullet. His hair looks so much like 1990s Dave Meltzer hair. It's hard to not imagine him when it's really grainy footage and you see him wrestling. I feel like 40 years from now, you could put in a tape of Brian Pillman and people would go, yep, this is the 80s. Like just It's just one shot of him w- with that mullet. But man, what a opportunity to learn wrestling. For, for people who may or may not know, Stampede Wrestling was around and then Stu sold his territory to Vince. And that's why we got Bret Hart in the WWF, why you get Jim the Nightheart and then the Bulldogs. And then as soon as they sold the territory and the, all the TV rights and the towns and the access to all the buildings, like a couple of years later, Bruce was like, I'm not a big star. So why don't we start wrestling again in all the same places with less people? They, so Stampede came back, just did the same exact thing they did before. I'm surprised Vince didn't take it out on, you know, Stu's sons for doing that. He's, he's, I guess Stu was just like, oh, it's my fucking other kid. He just likes the limelight. And obviously they weren't impeding upon WWE's business through Canada. But, you know, the Bulldogs came back. They had had a run there through Stampede, but it just wasn't the same. But also, too, this is where you get Billman. You get Owen. You get Mike Shaw. You get Gama Singh. You get a lot of really great wrestlers. You also get a lot of, like, that early New Japan 90s wrestler. I think, like, Liger even came through for a short period of time. Kenzai Sasaki. I don't know if Chona came through. But, like, anybody who was a big deal like early 90s New Japan was there in Stampede. And I mean, you could, if you were breaking in and you happened to be at the second coming of Stampede Wrestling, like you were going to be such a amazing quality wrestler that it, it would be ridiculous. You'd have to be stupid not to absorb all the wrestling knowledge you need to be successful. Like this, this second coming of Stampede Wrestling, this is, this is, you know, Brian was a, tape nerd well little did you know you were the thing that people were studying for sure brian debuted in november 86 and he'd have matches against makan singh aka bastion booger the british bulldogs he tag up with owen before joining forces with bruce to form the tag team back company they go on to win the tag team titles april of 87 defeating ron star and cuban assassin they'd spend the next year defending the belts against uh, jerry morrow and either mccann or cuban assassin until the summer of 88 and then brian would wrap up his time with stampede in early 89 the year stampede would go out of business by that point brian was a big name with pro wrestling smarks disgusting after Stampede, Brian did a couple weeks in New Japan, wrestling with Masa Saito, Tatsumi Fujinami, Black Cat, and Ricky Chosu. Choshu. Choshu. There you go. There you go. <laughs> old, old, that, that Monroe, North Carolina dialect just hit. Do you understand what we're saying, Nick? <laughs> Nick um, Nicholas over there having a stroke trying to say Toshiaki Kawada uh, or Mitsuhara Misawa. Uh, either or of those. Yeah, um, Tyler, just wait till we get to a Japanese episode. I'll, I'll get my come up. It's. <laughs> By 1989, the Brian Kilman pan. <laughs> <laughs> he is having a stroke, ladies and gentlemen. It's happening. 
Hey, uh, man, don't call me Pillman, Steve Austin. Call me Killman. <laughs> I feel like that should have been, that was like a secondary line to the Pillman break-in that we never saw. That was in the outtakes. By 1989, the Brian Pillman camp reached out to WCW and Jim Ross, and with his football background, good old JR was like, shut up and take our money. My God, you played football? You've stepped foot on a football field? My God, I'll give you $400,000. You shut your mouth about my fucking co-worker, my friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you shut your it, fucking mouth. What, is that I not a good impression of him? <laughs> I, I fucking love JR. I do, too. I love uh, J. He's the voice of my childhood I, wrestling I, memories. You, you, uh, yeah, clearly, and you fucking butchered the fuck out of it. I will, st- I will stand up for Jim Ross because I'll tell you what that, that guy does every day, that I, I'm at work and I'm getting some of the AEW action figures signed. And it's it's been a long bit between the two of us, and I, and, and I love it to death. And this would be an interaction I will always think of for, for the rest of my life because I love JR to death. I'll have all these figures laid out for Sheeta or Frankie Kazarian or Kenny Omega or whoever. I have all these figures laid out to get them signed. And they're just in the hallway on top of road cases. And inevitably, whenever I get these figures out, Jim Ross walks by. And Jim Ross will be like, Oh, you got those new JR figures? Huh, I guess you don't. And then they just kind of walk <laughs> off. <laughs> and the first couple of times, I'll let it slide. But then the third time, I'm like, mm, I'm not going to let him walk by. And he'd come by again. He goes, you got those JR figures? Guess not. Hmm. And, I, and that's when I go to Jim. I go, yeah, Jim, we're not in the business of making money. That's why I don't have your action figure. We're only here to mitigate losses. <laughs> and, like, he got a big fucking laugh out of that. <laughs> he goes, ha, 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 Like, and I was like, and that made me happy. He's like, I made Jim Ross laugh. Like, I, like, just caught him. That man's a national treasure to me, so. When anybody tries to do a hacky impersonation of him, I gotta fucking defend him. <laughs> All right, well, it, I, you can't say I was wrong about the football thing. The man loves his football players. This is true. I, That's the whole reason I did track and field. And it, it's not wrong, because when Colt Cabana debuted, that was the first thing that he brought up about Colt was his football career. And God, I wish I wish Jim could talk about my, my track and field and being a conference champion. Like, I really wish. I When I did, like, aw darks they said write some stuff about you that maybe the commentators can talk about and i put that in there in hopes that maybe jr decided to do the darks he doesn't do the darks and he's straight live tv that's what you need to put him fine great but i really wish he would do a dark and talk about how i've got collegiate background stuff because that's why i have it so jim ross can talk about it someday according to a uh, good old cage match.net brian's first ever wcw slash nwa match was against none other than George South. Fucking right it was. You heard about this and, before, Bullet? Oh, I have. The George loved Brian Pillman. Loved him. Like, and that was the thing, like, George was also the guy, like, if you wanted to test somebody out and see if anybody was worth anything, like, kind of about that time, like, in 89, George was kind of the guy as what, what the Brooklyn Brawler was to WWE. George was that for NWA, WCW. Like, you want to see if this guy, what he looks like, and we want to, you know, put him in the best light, put him against George. And if you don't hear George going, oh, this guy's horrible, you know, <laughs> like, if George doesn't come back like that, then it was probably a chance that this guy's pretty good, or you're definitely going to see the best stuff, and this guy's going to make this guy's best stuff look as good as possible. It's not going to be a situation you're putting out there with some guy who pumps gas Tuesday through Thursday, and he doesn't know how to take a drop kick bump. 
Like, no, you put him in there with George and see what this guy can do, see if he can really go. And, you know, now you got something that you can put even in a highlight reel or music video. So you have something to debut for him for like that going forward. So he was, he was the, he was the guy, man. And like George talks very highly about that. And Brian Pillman being smart and being educated and brought in properly through Stampede Wrestling never forgot that about George and always respected that of him and always treated him like an equal. And I think George even talked about like, you know, Pillman would change with the enhancement guys and hang out with the enhancement guys. He wasn't like, I mean, yeah, sure. He hung out with the Flares and the Austins and, and Arns and all the other top talent. But at the same time, too, he like would talk with anybody he was a locker room guy much like he was in football he was a locker room guy you know you have him in here and you always see him and always brightens your day a little bit let's talk about brian's style for a second because he's entering nwa wcw where bill watts demands that you do a 12 minute wrist lock take the pin and go home but he's been studying all these high flyers he's working with owen and the bulldogs sure he's not ricochet but He's a high flyer for the time, for sure. How would you describe his style versus the world he's about to enter? When Brian was wrestling in Stampede, it was very much wide open. And you had you know, New Japan guys that were probably just coming off a tour of Mexico before they head back to Japan and become Liger or become that big star. And obviously also coming from being around Dynamite and Davey, it's like, go balls out. Do every spot you possibly can. Really wow people with your athleticism. And then walking into the world of Bill Watts where it's always big dudes, wrist locks, finishes and promos and like long drawn out angles with big gruff looking dudes. The idea of like high flyers and all that is not quite what he's looking for, but Bill Watt always, you know, defends that like all the rules that he put in place was to create more heat because he saw Bob Eaton as a guy that could get heat for using those high flying moves. Because in his mind, like you know, Bobby was one of the best high flyers in the world. So in his mind, like he makes jumping off the top rope illegal when. Bobby is later in the match and Jim Cornette hops in the apron and Bobby does a move and jumps off the top rope. Oh, he's supposed to get heat for coming off the top or doing those things that are outside the rules for a guy because he saw high flyers as rule breakers as opposed to people doing something spectacular the fans would like to see high athleticism. So someone like Brian and with the philosophy that Watts was trying to enact and really was conflicted. And I I hear Watts... explanation on why he did it and that makes sense if you want to make your top heel bob eaton and make high flyers heels but what about when you have somebody who's as amazing as brian pillman and you have a deal with new japan where you're bringing in liger and the idea that wrestling is changing and what people want to see out of wrestling is changing you know now these rules bog down what you could present as this new wave of wrestling and this new evolution of professional wrestling and be at the cutting edge of something it kind of tampers down the, the whole progress and sport and art of professional wrestling. I love hearing the backstory of rules like that. You know, the high flyer high flying is technically illegal because if you want to, you know, trace pro wrestling back to amateur wrestling, it would make sense that, you know, a drop kick should be illegal once you factor all that in or coming off the top rope and hearing the breakdown of that 
is very interesting, but I completely agree with you that it makes no sense when all the baby faces are doing the interesting high-flying moves, and those are technically illegal, because they're supposed to be the good guys, and they're just breaking rules left and right. It's also interesting, like, him coming in, like, seeing his body versus how his body is from what I know him mostly from with the loose cannon stuff. He looks jacked. I don't know if it's the difference in the style of gear that he was wearing or what, but he seemed like a pretty sturdy dude when he first came in. Well, he just came off of uh, playing pro football, and also I think the loose cannon stuff was mostly after his accident, mm-hmm. so I think he lost a lot of you know muscle mass. There's no way Bill Watts wasn't like, high flying, that's what the Mexicans and Japanese do. Ban it! Ban it right now! <laughs> Because I'm Bill Watts, and I'm a goddamn racist. Dude, that makes more sense that he was still bringing them in, but he was like, they're heels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ligers are heels. You see them jumping? <laughs> <laughs> they're going sne- to do a sneaky Pearl Harbor. Right? <laughs> it's called a diving headbutt, for God's sakes, Bill. <laughs> Ugh. Bill Watts is in a weird place in my mind, because... There are things that he says that I think are very smart about wrestling and how pro wrestling can be designed and put together and how you can tell a compelling story. Then you read that that interview he did that got Hank Aaron very mad and rightfully so. And you're like, man, like, whatever I felt about you is like the complete opposite now. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's so, come on, dude, what's wrong with you? So Brian rolls in on the house show loop, working Mike Rotunda, the Raider, Stampede colleague, the Lunatic, a.k.a. Bastion Booger. And uh, he was getting a lot of wins, kind of getting over with his style in a federation where anyone under 67490 was called a beta cuck concession stand worker. <laughs> um, he'd have his first pay-per-view match at the first ever Halloween Havoc in 1989 against Lex Luger getting a shot at the NWA United States heavyweight title. And to speak on kind of what Tyler brought up, he's in the ring with Lex fucking Luger, a guy who is getting pushed solely for his body. Brian looks just as good. I mean, Luger has a little height and mass on him, but like, I'd rather look like flying Brian here. I have a question. You guys didn't watch this. You weren't around to watch this when you were growing up, were you? I lived it. Okay, good. <laughs> I was I was in the back with George South and Italian style. <laughs> Am so. I supposed to give a fuck about Lex Luger? Because I've never been extremely impressed by him. Oh, shut your fucking mouth! <laughs> like here we go. He looks bad in this match. In in the the Halloween Havoc match, he does not look good. I don't know how new he is to everything, but he looks bad. Well, I I don't disagree. Like early Luger, like not a good fucking wrestler. He had him in an arm bar. Luger completely no-sells it to yell at a fan in the front row. Like, he's wrenching on his arm, and he's just yelling at this fan. It's ridiculous. Early Luger, if he's not if he's not wrestling, like, Flair or another member of the Horsemen, like, it's not a good match. Because for whatever reason, I, I take that back, for, for very good reason. Like, the Horsemen were like, hey, we got Luger. We've, we've got it. We've got to make him look good because we've got to draw money, and we're at the top of the card. Where, like, if you're in a mid-card match with Luger, you're going to have very little, like, incentive to make him look good. Because he was probably a dick to you. Yeah. And Luger admitted to you very early in his life he was a dick. And so you're going to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to make this guy look good. But if you were friends with Luger, which, surprisingly, if you were top of the card or a main event guy, you were friends with Luger because he hung out with those people because he viewed himself that same mm-hmm. way. 
That's why him and Sting always had great matches, had good tag matches together, and the Steiners liked Luger, so they had great matches. But, like, yeah, this, these early Lugers, he was never going to pull the best out of somebody. But if he had the right dance partner, he could have some great matches. And I'm sure, without a shadow of a doubt, Luger probably said something shitty to Brian Pillman, and Brian could have been, like, fluffed it off and then went out there and had a great match with Luger and just proved the point that, hey, mm -hmm. I can have a great match with Lex Luger. But he was probably like, nope, not going to put up with this. Fuck him. I'm going to look good. I hope Luger looks like shit. And I think that a lot of people took that attitude with Luger. If you were, like, especially if you were mid-carder and you didn't have to draw money with him, if he was just going to be a booked match, he was just like, you know what? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna like work with this guy, or I'm not gonna meet this guy halfway. And Luger's talent never could bring himself up to a level to save himself from that. And that, and that, that essentially is the kind of the the tragedy of early Lex Luger. Is he could if, if he had a good attitude, I, I think we we're looking at Luger in a completely different way. I think if he had a good attitude and realized like, hey, I got the spot because I have a good body, mm -hmm. and worked with people a little bit better, he may be like a John Cena type. Yeah. Not known for in-ring in presence, but known for character and yeah, staying power. And, and backstage, guys really want to have good matches and put them over. And, and someone like a Shawn Michaels can be like, I can have a great match with this guy. Have a Triple H, like, I can have a WrestleMania main event with this guy. And like, yeah, we got to keep putting in the main event. He's he's one of our hardest workers. And yeah, he's, he's in this spot. We put him in it very fast. And he had a look and he had something going. But fuck, he's, he's got a good attitude. Let's keep putting him in the main event. I feel like we could be looking at Luger the same way we look at John Cena and his wrestling ability if Luger just had a good attitude. Are you saying that Lex Luger just needed an attitude adjustment? <laughs> The, the thing is, too, it's a solid enough match. It's just that the holes that are poking through where you're, you're realizing something's off is all coming from Luger. And that says something about Pillman, too, that he can go out. He's relatively new, too. He just debuted in 86. He's only three years in. And he's going out and looking like he belongs in that spot. And then you have Luger. I think it was JR on commentary. Pillman had Luger in a hold, and he's like, Luger's face tells the story. And his face has the exact same expression. It always has. <laughs> I think that's the difference. Brian came in. He was a tape nerd. He also came up in a very competitive, good environment. It was Stampede. The story of Lex is like, he comes in. He's immediately put at the top of the card because he looks like a fucking Greek god. He goes to WCW, immediately put at the top of the card because he looks like a Greek god. Goes to WWF, immediately put at the top of the card because he looks like a Greek god. At what point does he go, oh, I should probably learn how to fucking be William Regal or... Why, why would you? Why would you stay after and put in the extra arm drag work or whatever <laughs> when you're already winning? You know, he's, he's the ultimate warrior, basically. You know, it's like, I don't need all this technical shit. I have 45-inch muscles and go ahead say it. i win pythons. i have a say pythons. Yeah, I said pythons and then i backed out <laughs> but yeah this match i thought brian carried him to a pretty watchable match the crowd was super into it the the, the glaring holes aside it was like paced well mm -hmm. and again luger is like new still you know uh and brian got it got a good match out of him i thought after taking the L to Lex, he'd uh, get into the early 90s with the Z-Man, Tom Zine, tag team, and eventually winning a tournament for the titles against the fabulous Freebirds. 
They'd have a long house show run defending them against Bobby and, and Stan Lane, the Midnight Express, before dropping the belts to said Express at the infamous 1990 Capital Combat, The Return of Robocop. From there, Brian would start getting pushed a bit as a singles competitor. He'd uh, start working with Fatu, Dutch Mantel, Mean Mark, and even beat Tim Bell Pod episode Buddy Landell. By 91, Brian's exciting style and his good looks and his charisma was getting him pretty damn over with the WCW crowd. He'd start working his way up the card a little bit, eventually feuding with the Four Horsemen, main eventing WrestleWar 91 in the fucking War Games match. It was Ric Flair, Barry Windham, Sid, Larry Zabisco versus Brian Sting, the Steiners. Brian started the match despite having a heavily taped shoulder from a Four Horsemen attack the previous night, and Jake who won the coin toss always the heels always heels the always heels. win the always win the coin toss from what i hear the time that they didn't it was actually a really unique one i've heard people like rave about that one but i was like uh i i'd have to see that i i didn't really trust the person who was telling me that <laughs> brian and his injured shoulder would be a big part of the ending said power bombs him on it twice basically KOing him and then eligante runs out rips open the cage door and tells the referee to stop the match so that happened. Fall of 1991. Have either of you guys heard about the bar fight between Psycho Sid and Brian Pillman? Of course I've fucking heard about the fucking fight <laughs> with Brian Pillman and fucking Psycho Sid. Like, of course I fucking So I just want you to check me if I get anything wrong. Thank, thank God. I, okay. I know you will. Right. <laughs> I, I, oh, I will. I will. So... Psycho Sid, uh, he defected to the WWF, and he comes back to Atlanta to hang out with some people from WCW, and uh, they're at a bar, and among the people there are Pillman and Mike Graham, and uh, he might have had heat with both of them, or just Pillman, I'm not really sure, but they start yelling at each other, jawjacking back and forth, and before they come to blows, Sid Vicious leaves and comes back with the great equalizer of a squeegee that I guess he planned to clean Pillman with. And everybody just laughed him out of the building, and he left, <laughs> never to be seen again. <laughs> I didn't know he got left out of the building. Oh, yeah. Sid. Yeah, everybody, because it's a fucking squeegee. <laughs> yeah, he didn't do anything. He, he went to the car to go hit them with something, even though he's as... He's as big as a fucking house. I know. <laughs> like, he's like, I'm going to go fucking go get something to fuck these guys up. Like, he had some sort of bat in his trunk. He didn't. He had a fucking squeegee. And they just fucking started laughing. And then, like, what are you going to do? Eat a fucking... A guy who's, like, belly laughing on the ground, what are you going to do? Like, beat the shit out of him? <laughs> like, not even Sid's that much of a piece of shit. Brian would continue his Four Horsemen feud, breaking off mostly to feud with uh, Barry Windham, losing to him at 91 Super Brawl, and leading to a loser leaves WCW match at Clash of the Champions 15, with Brian teaming up with Elegante and Barry teaming up with Arn. In this match, only the person who takes the pin is uh, kicked out of WCW. And they, like, just don't play up the gravity of the situation whatsoever. It's a short three-minute match. Gonzalez doesn't even get tagged in. Brian takes the pin after getting pushed off the top of the rope from behind from Barry and then kicked in the face. And for a loser leaves town, match is just like, bam, bam, bam. Match is over. Brian's career is over. Yada, yada. Here's a promo for Great American Bash. Like, no drama, no build-up. Just bam, 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 bam. Bye. Yeah. And 
That's very typical early 90s WCW. Like it just, like you look back at some of those early WCW stuff and it's so, so schizophrenic. Like I, it, it feels like they were trying so hard to be WWF at the time, but they lost, but the, they have these wrestlers that that's like not their thing and they didn't want it to be their thing. And they're just going out there begrudgingly and just doing this stupid shit and then be like, I hate my job. At least the check's clear. Bye. Like, it just, it's so fucking weird. It's so schizophrenic. It made little or no sense. But it did birth something that been used time and time again, tried and true uh, by old Dusty Rhodes himself, and that is the yellow dog yes. gimmick. With Brian Gone, a mysterious masked man would show up. That was Yellow Dog, who beat Johnny B. Bad at Great American Bash 91. Uh, he'd do some house show shows before showing back up at Clash of Champions 16 as Brian Pillman, where he would beat Bad Street, who is who, Jake? The character of Bad Street, which is Brad Armstrong, which I think they even called him Fantasia. But yes, Brad Armstrong, none other than. Also, too, back about this yellow dog gimmick. As I said, it's been done. This is one of those things that Dusty had success with in Florida, and then it showed up in WCW. Or somebody, or Mike Graham, or somebody remembered it from Florida. Because actually, it's funny that Barry is in this match, because Barry was actually yellow dog for a short period of time. He lost a loser leave town match in Florida, and he was yellow dog. And I remember WCW Magazine at this time would do these things where they'd show a picture of Brian next to Yellow Dog and be like, see, it's not me. I'm not Yellow Dog. And it's clearly Tom Zink yeah. wearing the Yellow Dog mask. But then it'd be like, vice, there'd be another picture of vice versa. It'd be like Brian under the Yellow Dog mask and then Tom Zink like, see, it's not me. And it's very much in the vein of Midnight Rider and everything else. So the, the Yellow Dog thing has been done to death. And there's actually a Midwest wrestler that started wrestling as Yellow Dog, but more like an actual dog. Oh, yeah. I've seen you work with him before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah J- Jason Strife. I've, I've had a lot of good matches with him in scramble situations. And I'd l- I would love to have a actual singles match with him as Yellow Dog with all of the Yellow Dog gimmicky things. And I think that would be fantastic. You say he's more of a yellow. Do you mean like anthropomorphic? No, like he's an actual, like he goes and does dog stuff. He's not like, hey, I'm yellow dog and I have a mask and I'm just call myself yellow gotcha. dog. Gotcha, he's a yellow so, right, dog. He is a dog. Yeah. He's a personification. <laughs> yeah, he I gotcha. Rust- like Brian Pillman wasn't going out there with chew toys. This guy will come out there with a chew toy and a ball. Does he have like this so. super realistic, like probably used for sex stuff, like realistic looking dog head or is it just... No, it's like yellow dog. Okay. Like yellow dog, motherfucker. Like, <laughs> oh, I found, okay. He has a tail. I found a he picture. He has a tail and shit. <laughs> yeah. He has a tail. After beating Brad in this light heavyweight semifinals match, he would go on to the finals of 91 Halloween Havoc to face Richard Morton, not that rock and roll guy, Ricky. This is Richard. And Pillman would go on to win the match with a uh, flying crossbody off the top and win his first ever light heavyweight championship. He'd defend that belt against uh, Johnny B. Bad at Clash 17 in November 91. He had a little house show run with uh, Steve Austin, which uh, that's fun for, for later. Then he'd drop the belt to Jushin Liger on Christmas, and that's who he'd meet at Super Brawl 2, February 29th, 92, in a rare February 29th match. And uh, this is hands down my favorite Pillman match. I mean, it's Brian Pillman and Liger. Like, it's it's really fucking awesome. The fact that they have the background with, you know, Stampede Wrestling, so they had similar training at some point in time. 
like they learn from same teachers and coming together in a big stage. And, and that's, it's one of those things where like, there's a reason why me and Caleb Conley have chemistry is because we were at the same training school, you know, Liger spent some time in stampede. So obviously he was picking up some of the knowledge that the similar knowledge that Pillman was gathering together. So it's kind of an unwritten rule. Like, Hey, we do this at this time and this, this will make sense. And like, let's do this. And Hey, I remember when you were doing this back in the day, you do this anymore. I remember this. Oh yeah, that's really good. Oh, that's a lot better. Let's definitely work that in. Things become much more shorthand when it's much more understood and their chemistry was off the charts. Their, their willingness to really have a good match and display how good they were like that drive, Drive, chemistry, and motivation are three of the things that you need to have a really great match. If you have those things, if you have a certain amount of ability, you're going to have a great match, something that's going to stand out and people are going to remember. And those guys most certainly had all of those qualities with each other. And it also probably stands to reason that like two high flyers are going to gel in a probably more exciting way. Also, and these two, a lot of double drop. I think there were two double drop kick spots. Just fun stuff to watch. Barry Abrams from Syracuse University won the Super Brawl 2 ring announcer competition. (laughs) That was announced during that match. Uh, Good for him. Very happy for him. I love that that moon or the, um, like when you're going to do a front flip and your body is parallel to the ropes as you're doing a handstand and then you flip back, like they do it a lot in Japan and Mexico. Fucking love that spot so much. Brian does a fucking crazy roll up pin with his feet. And I, I don't know how to begin mm. to describe that shit. But uh, again, I love this match. I think you could put it on any AEW show, any WrestleMania and people are going to, this, this match is going to get over. And I, I gotta say like Liger versus Pillman, like that's always been something that is of lore, especially of, of the tape trading community. And I can't tell you how many times they tried to put Brian Pillman Jr. versus Liger before Liger kind of hung him up. And fucking Court Bauer, like, blocked it from everybody, said, no, I want to do it in MLW. I want to do it in MLW. And then I think somebody did a tag match where Brian Pillman was on one side and Liger was on the other side. And they did that, and then I think, Liger like retired before he could ever be brought into MLW to do that match. So Corp Hour's like, no, no, don't do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm doing it. And then never fucking did it. And all we got is a tag match between the two. So and I don't know if because that tag match happened, Court was like, Well, it's not that special anymore. Fuck it. I, I don't know, but I, I know that really didn't happen, but I know a lot of people tried to do it. I think we even tried to do it at a super show for WrestleCon one year, and we were told we couldn't do it. And then it didn't happen, so it was very frustrating. We never, we never really got that match because I think that would have been a cool little bookend to uh, the Liger Pillman saga. That sucks because they were very close because right? they, they had the tag match, and then I know Pillman was on the same card where you were in the six man tag with Liger, right? Uh, it wasn't. I don't think it was that show, but I think that's the show we were going to do it at okay. originally. Yes. After winning the belt, he defended against Brad Armstrong and Scotty Flamingo, worked the house show loop, and uh, even do a couple tag matches against Diamond Stud and Oz. Brian would lose the title to Scotty Flamingo at Beach Brawl 92. He'd get some Starcade 91 action in the Battle Bowl, teaming up with beautiful Bobby to lose to Abdullah and Sting. Then he'd spend the next couple months not really uh, doing too much, and I think this is when Bill Watts takes over and brings in all the rules and just really cut his legs out from under him. 
on top of that, the light heavyweight scene just kind of disappeared, which we'll get into right here. September 2nd, 92, Clash of Champions 20, which, fun fact, is Andre the Giant's last U.S. pro wrestling television appearance. Anybody want to pin it? It would also be the last time Brian Pillman would be some beta babyface because he was about to turn full-blown motherfucking hill. Light heavyweight champion Brad Armstrong was supposed to defend the title against Pillman, but while on a tour of Japan, Brad injured his knee in a match with Great Muda, forcing them to cancel the Clash 20 match and Brad to vacate the title. Brad is on a crutch, giving a promo to Jesse the Body when a pissed-off Brian Pillman interrupts he calls bradley a coward and a disgrace and then rick james bitches him right across the face <laughs> launching a feud between two of the great in-ring technicians of all time the accents yeah <laughs> and then all those three like brad armstrong he had a subtle georgia accent yeah, he did. Yeah, like he, he had did. A, a little bit of a twang but then you had pillman going hey i think you're a fucking coward <laughs> you know all raspy voice and then you had jesse like what's this all about pillman <laughs> you know this big boisterous like can't you see the man's hurt on crutches listen here you're about as bad as mcmahon i don't buy it <laughs> Their feud would mostly be a house show run, which sucks. They'd get a handful of TV matches, and of course, Brad makes Brian look like a big, badass hill. I mean, those two working together is just, it is nice. Brian would soon get tossed into the next phase of his career. He'd have a short tag team with Barry Windham before Barry was replaced by none other than stunning Steve Austin for one of the coolest things in both men's careers. Pillman and Austin had had some matches, I think even some TV matches tagging up together, but those were just matches, like a one-off, throw these dudes together, but now they're about to get Facebook official. They'd start feuding with Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas over the tag team titles, having some really great matches. They'd end up winning the titles in a March episode of WCW Worldwide. So a tag team formed by Dusty Rhodes kind of just closing his eyes and pointing at two dudes was, I mean, they had some gold on them. They were really getting over. It was cool to see Pillman start to finally get some personality out. Like before that, a uh, solid wrestler, but seeing the intensity that he started to show in these promos is kind of like that glimmer of what would eventually become the loose cannon. You know, when you just let guys leave guys to their own devices, that's when you really find out if somebody's talented. And, and you can't do that with everybody because some people just don't have the personality. But if, if people are like, just kind of be like, hey, throw some guys together that have some talent and ability and they're both like feeling the pressure like hey if this next thing doesn't work out they're gonna fire us like you get two guys together with some talent and ability and chemistry magic can be created i mean you look at like the new day they just threw those guys together had no they had a plan for them they're like no that's not really us and then like they didn't care about them they just kind of let them go out there and do whatever and then all of a sudden they do something entertaining and they do it again next week. And then people look forward to seeing that, that thing entertaining. And all of a sudden they go on, huh, people care about these guys, you know? And that's what ends up happening is that you just let guys to their own devices. They'll come up with something. And that's what Steve always talks about with his time during Brian is like these, they were thrown together. They didn't know what to do. Like, well, let's. Let's make this work. Let's figure this out. Let's do something. Let's try this. Let's try this. And then, you know, Brian was like, let's do this. Let's do that. And then, like, just bouncing ideas, traveling down the road together, figuring out, trying things out. Because, hey, if this doesn't work out, we're fired. So since they wouldn't give Steamboat and Shane a rematch, 
They started a feud with Dos Hombres, an up-and-coming lucha team that turned out to be Ricky and Shane. But weird thing about this is Shane was actually fired from WCW during this time, but the angle was already laid out, and the way they taped shit, like, the results really depended on this feud happening. So they let Ricky take his mask off, but underneath the other one, one time it would be Brad Armstrong, and one time for the pay-per-view it would be Tom Zink. And the Slamboree match is uh, in a steel cage. Ricky dives off the top, which is pretty fun. After the feud with Steamboat and quote-unquote Douglas, which that sounds illegal, right? To be like, hey, Shane Douglas is under this mask, but it's not him. Like, that's, like, legally not cool. Oh, I mean, yeah, I don't know quite. I don't remember if they said directly this is Shane Douglas. Oh, no, they they for sure said this was Shane Douglas. Well, then, yeah, that'd probably be a thing. Like, that's probably, I mean, if they said, like, that has to be Shane Douglas, there must be, there would be enough of an inclination we're surmising and assuming. But if they're like, oh, that's definitely Shane Douglas, then that's, then, yeah, that's probably a violation. (laughs) But what are you going to do? Deal with the, Shane Douglas, you know, get his lawyers and go against Ted Turner lawyers? That's where a lot of things die. Is like, do you have $10,000 to buy a lawyer? Nope. Okay. Well, then I'll stop talking shit about Ric Flair. <laughs> so. so next up for the Blondes was probably, you know, their biggest kind of moment in the sun here when they started feuding with the Four Horsemen, mainly Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, after going on Flair for the Gold and mocking them for being old. They do a parody called Flair for the Old, which sounds like a very niche porn. Ageism aside, Flair was getting mocked for being old in 1993 and then wrestled like 25 more years. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. The Blondes would take on Arn and Rick in what was Rick's return match from WWF in a two out of three falls match. And it ends in a weird way. So Rick and them get a pin. And then the last fall is a DQ. So they technically win two out of three falls, but they don't win the belts. I've never seen oh. any kind of like outcome or ruling like that as a um, fan that would piss me off so much it seems like a like a way to like squirrel your way out of it yeah, it seems like an ending to any monday night raw after this match rick leaves to focus on the world title so he's replaced by paul roma arnon paul lose to the blondes at beach blast 93 and then the blow-off match is so weird because paul replaced rick and then brian pillman got hurt so he was replaced by steven regal for like this big blow off match of just, I guess, Arn and Steve. I don't know. It was, it was very, just a clusterfuck. The injury would be a big part of the breakup of the Hollywood Blondes. While Brian was rehabbing, Steve would get lured away by Colonel Rob Parker in the stud stable. Brian came back from injury. They'd end up turning on each other, having a small, kind of disappointing feud. And the tag team was dead by October 93. Yeah, and Brian, from what I know, was just kind of like, knocking around WCW at that point and kind of disgruntled about everything. Like, he didn't have any faith in me. I found something that got over. I I get an injury, and it's all just kind of taken away from me, and you won't do anything with me. But you know I have ability. I got the receipts with Flair and Arn to show that we have ability and we're good, and you won't do anything with me. Like, George South tells me a great story about how disgruntled Brian could be and he'd be open about it like he would say like hey I got 180 days left of my contract or (laughs) he knew that George was like 
booking a lot of shows with Stallion for PWF, and he would wait for like whoever the booker was or like an executive or somebody who's like running shows like Gary Jester, like somebody that was like an executive. And he would just look for George and be like, Hey George, you got any bookings I can take this weekend? I want to wrestle <laughs> instead of whatever I do here. You know, he would just like very loudly file his complaints very annoyingly. But he also had some really great matches. Like at this time, I remember a WCW Saturday night where him and, Buff Bagwell had this really good fucking match and they did a double cross body spot that is just so perfect of a spot. It just, it's seared in my mind forever. And it's like about the time I got cable and I remember Brian having really great matches and then being like, oh, this guy's really good. I, I really got to start paying attention to this guy when he's on TV, much to the same sense of how I, I felt about Brad Armstrong at that time and Arn Anderson and even Bobby Eaton as a blue blood. Like those were kind of my guys that when they were on WCW Saturday night, you know, don't change the channel because there's going to be a good match with them for sure. September 4th, 95, Brian Pillman was the first ever match on Monday Nitro live from Mall of America where he beat Jushin Thunder Liger. And your new show, you have a match to hook people. Send out Liger and Brian Pillman. I mean, Bischoff was running things by then, so it's like kind of a new era. But that's like a that's a lot of confidence in in a guy. It's like a it's like your opening joke as an unknown comic. It's like you have fucking ten seconds to hook these fuckers until they're texting on their phone, and they send Brian Pillman out. That's probably why he's more frustrated when it comes time to renegotiate his contract too because they're like we trust you enough to be the opening match here uh in the first nitro and he goes well obviously that's going to translate to money right right and it didn't and i can understand how that's very frustrating for somebody to trust you not to fuck something up you go out there and you deliver and it doesn't translate to them taking care of you and he i gotta see why he did it from like all the podcasts i've listened from Bischoff like he wanted to get to the super junior stuff and what better way to to get there and kind of introduce like your built-in audience of WCW of like hey well, this is where we're gonna go is Billman and Liger but eventually we're gonna get Malenko, Mysterio, Jericho, Guerrero like we're, we're gonna get to those and Liger and Pillman is that connective tissue from the old WCW so bringing them out is kind of like all right well this is where that book ends but there's gonna be more like this going forth following this brian's starting to get into some legit main event-ass shit he would form a team with arn anderson and they started fucking with rick flair brian would cost flair a match against arn anderson at 95 fall brawl and then at uh halloween havoc we get into some classic four horsemen rick flair hill shit Pillman and Arn attack Flair before the match for some babyface sting to go wrestle two on one. Flair comes in to make the save. Swerve. Flair wasn't hurt. He was in on it the whole time. They all beat up Sting. And from there, Brian would join the four horsemen. It would be him, Arn, Ric Flair, and he who shall not be named. Uh, you're glazing over, like, if I'm going to talk of something good about this man, like, you know it's fucking good. They they jump Flair, Sting is out there having this amazing match with Pillman and Arn, which rightfully so, and probably pretty easy to do because those guys are incredible. 
Ric Flair comes out in fucking street clothes. Rooting Sting on for the tag. Uh, come on, getting the crowd doing the whole baby face. Give me the tag, give me the tag, give me the tag. Finally gets the tag. Everybody loses their minds. People are wooing. Flair hits the ropes, bounces off the ropes, and punches Sting yeah. right in the face. It's the funniest. It's It's been done by Rick so many times, but gosh, I still, I still laugh every time I see it because it's so comically put together so well some (laughs) shit just works yeah it just does by the end of 95 pillman was starting to flirt with this whole new loose cannon gimmick still a member of the four horsemen he started acting a bit nuts looking like a jack kurt cobain he'd start blurring the lines of kayfabe and reality and i like to think that uh after just a few weeks of hanging out with rick flair this nice quiet cincinnati boy turned into a full-blown lunatic oh no he was raised in the nasty natty he's always been a fucking lunatic (laughs) this was for sure one of the first times where he's mixing some really behind the scenes pro wrestling shit and saying it to the marks in the audience do you remember this? Do like where you, you were growing up through this? I remember some of it, but I didn't get most of it because I was like a kid. See, I was the same way. I was a kid. I didn't. And so this is the. I think you and I are the argument on not saying some of these insider terms. I I feel like there's an argument to be made against doing that. Where I feel like everybody's like, no, 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 talk about it. Go ahead and talk about it. And it makes it feel more real. Well, it it's real if people understand it and obsesses over pro wrestling that much like what we got to remember is not everybody obsesses about it as much some people just casually watch professional wrestling and you want to scoop up casual fans because it's the difference between 5,000 people coming to your event and 8,000 and 10,000 people you know you you want to scoop up because once you get past that 10,000 mark you're you're scooping up some casual fans in a market and like you, if you want to draw bigger houses, make more money, sell more tickets, sell more merch, you you got to scoop up some of those casual wrestling fans, those kids that aren't obsessing over it. They just may follow their favorite wrestlers on Instagram, and that's all that is. You know, when you start talking about like super mark insider terms, then that seven thousand and five thousand becomes even smaller. You want to say as much to translate to everybody, so that way they feel more included because if you say something and only a small amount of people know what's going on it may tune them out much like in the same sense of what you're saying about a comic that first joke has to hit if you say something that they don't understand it it causes people to go huh what oh what's on my phone and then move on and not pay attention to you i mean there is that danger but if you're of that passionate fan and they say something that's very inside, you're going to lose your goddamn mind. You're going to tweet about it. You're going to talk about it on, a, on your podcast and your YouTube channel. You're going to tell your friends about it. You're going to probably drag friends to the show. So it can be a way to create good business, but it also can turn people away. So it's a, it's, it is a weird double-edged sword, and both sides should be recognized. I don't know, you know which is better, because now I can look back at that loose cannon stuff that he was doing and saying these insider terms and I could look at it like, oh wow, that was really cool as a 40-year-old man that's seen an extensive amount of pro wrestling where as a kid I was still enjoying it because it's like, oh, Brian Pillman's saying crazy yeah. stuff and I don't know what it is. Some highlights from this loose cannon run. January 23rd, 96, Brian was taking on Eddie Goat Rero at Clash of the Champions 32 and if you are a fan of the word fuck... This is your match. 
Eddie kicks Brian out of the ring. He goes out being all crazy, grabs Bobby Heenan by the neck, and uh, Heenan has a history of neck issues. He freaks out and screams, what the fuck are you doing live on TV? (laughs) And then Brian pulls the tights and beats Eddie. And Bobby was pretty broken up by this because he's such a professional. He's like, I can't believe I said fuck live (laughs) on the air. Which makes me think that like Bobby Heenan's podcast wouldn't be as good as we'd hope it to be <laughs> if he was that weirded out about saying fuck into a live microphone. Because we say it a lot here. I think somewhere in this time period, there's that story where Brian goes to the TV convention, still with WCW, and like beelines to Vince and gets a picture and maybe drops some I'm gonna come work for you shit. Yeah, he used Meltzer's uh, credentials to get in there. Fucking Meltzer. Yeah, and as we know from the dark side of the ring, he tried to get Ken Wood's credentials to go to the Super Bowl and run in the middle of the field. Because <laughs> Terry Funk was telling him that was a good idea, and he goes, well, Funker's right, you know? If I run out of the middle of the field during the Super Bowl... Popular. What does it sound like Terry Funk trying to sell him on that? Oh, God damn it, kid. I see what you're doing. I get it. I, I, th- I think it's great. It just re- really warms my heart that you're, you're really taking the business serious. <laughs> now... If you want to take this business a little more seriously, if you want to quit pussyfooting around, <laughs> I suggest <laughs> you strip you strip bud naked. I mean wang her out. <laughs> wang her out. Wang her just blowing in the goddamn wind and then run on the field during the Super Bowl. It's early 90s. It's probably the Buffalo Bills. They're probably getting the shit beat out of them. Nobody gives a goddamn about the game. So security's going to be a little laxed. Because they're going to worry about all these Dallas Cowboys doing unsavory shit after the Super Bowl happens. So that'd be the perfect time to run on the field because security is going to worry about all the drugs the Dallas Cowboys are going to do in the locker room. So I say, buy a ticket to the Super Bowl, strip butt-ass naked, and just claw and scratch and climb up that goalpost. It'll take them at least an hour to get your ass down. And if you chain yourself to the goalpost, then they got to get goddamn tools. You got John Madden using the Telestrator circling your wanger right there on NBC. Brian Pillman would have been an elite naked streaker. Like he's outrunning all catch. the cops. I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I feel like Terry. I think Terry uh, put the naked part in there, but definitely the the chaining himself to the goalpost. I think was discussed, <laughs> or at least the Terry for Ten Bell Pod had, had was painting a different picture because saying the word wanger in a somewhat southern slow accent is much funnier. You you so. said wanger in such a way that I was like, Jake's talked to Terry Funk about penises before. <laughs> Sometimes, so like I, like I tell my girlfriend, sometimes these characters, I got to go all the way through. Once I'm in there, I got to go all the way to through the end to come back out. <laughs> and she's just got to sit there and listen to it, the whole thing, until I come out the other yeah, side. Yeah, you don't want to get stuck in so. there. That's bad. Then you're, <laughs> yeah, 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 you're yeah, Jared Leto. You got you to gotta find a little button on the bit and then get the fuck out. Then we get to a match on Nitro episode 23 when Brian and Arn took on Kevin Sullivan and Hugh Morris. Brian and Kevin do this is planned, but they don't sell each other's offense. It's like really trippy for this era of wrestling TV. This would all set up a match at a Super Brawl 6 where Brian took on the Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan in an I respect you strap match. It's basically an I quit match where you're supposed to beat your opponent till they say they respect you. Very Aretha Franklin. Brian and Kevin seemingly shoot fight before Brian grabs the mic drops a I respect you Mr. Booker man and just fucking leaves in 59 seconds 
and then Arn Anderson comes out and it's like, well, if nobody's going to fight him, I will, and fights him in street clothes. I didn't get the WCW pay-per-views because they were a little bit more expensive than the WWF ones because the in your houses that were fourteen ninety five. I always got one of those. And then, of course, like WrestleMania, of course, you're going to get that. SummerSlam, of course, you're going to get that. Survivor Series, of course, you're going to get that. But, like, there'd be, like, six or eight WCW pay-per-views, and they'd all be, like, $35, which would be the price of, like, a WrestleMania. I'm like, uh, the Super Bowl just seems like a bigger in-your-house. But I would always make sure that I'd watch the television program after a pay-per-view to get the recap. And they'd, they'd always show stills. See, this, guys, this is a different era. Like, if I want to see a fucking WWE pay-per-view and I don't fucking have Peacock, I'll just go to Twitter. Like, just go to fucking Twitter and you're going to see everything you fucking want to see. GIF, short clip, every take. There's no need for me to watch fucking wrestling. I'll just go on fucking Twitter. That's all you need to do. Back in the day when there was a pay-per-view, you had to have screenshots and then explanations from Tony Schiavone. And having Tony Schiavone explain what the fuck happened in this Respect Booker Man match is still, like, the most confusing thing. And I'm pretty sure Tony's like, I don't know what the fuck happened. And then you want me to explain it? Fine. And he just, for a matter of fact, like, Brian Pillman came out. Seems like he didn't want to fight Kevin Sullivan. He said bye, left, Arn Anderson was here to defend the horseman's name, and they got the shit beat out of him, and then came back later and had another match. Like, it was just very weird, very odd, and then having Tony Schiavone trying to explain it to 12-year-old Jake Manning, I was lost and perplexed by the whole thing. That's a good lead-in for behind all this on-screen stuff that was happening. There was this behind-the-scenes work that was happening with Eric Bischoff and Brian Pillman kind of working everyone in the world and there's even was pillman working bischoff this is this spider web of who's in on it so tony for sure didn't know but they eric and brian would have like heated confrontations in the back that were essentially staged but just between the two of them brian would no show events he'd come late to events and it's all just method acting in this fucking crazy loose cannon gimmick and following this super brawl match brian no shows monday nitro it's just it's it's just layers there's layers and layers of layers of who's working who and the following weekend brian pillman shows up on fucking ecw if you haven't seen this clip it's pretty goddamn crazy joey styles is in the ring the lights cut off undertaker style brian pillman shows up in a very sassy pose to a uh, massive pop he starts ranting about the Constitution, and I'm like, is this going to turn into a QAnon thing? He says some real mean shit about Bischoff, and then starts calling the crowd marks and gets booed. He almost whips his dick out, right? Yeah, yeah. He says he's going to pull out his Johnson and piss all over the ECW ring, which in all fairness, Jimmy pissed the ring sounds like a fucking ECW gimmick. <laughs> D- did you hear about this ECW thing because as when i was growing up i I had no fucking clue what ecw was was this on your radar at all no uh this is a a go back and take a look and try and put it back in its its context and it is very interesting and visceral and, and understanding the the debut of it and i mean it's the forbidden door essentially and ecw was kind of that for sure because actually people remember there was a there's a couple of times that WCW lent their talent to ECW. Like Arn Anderson showed up for a match. Bobby Heenan showed up for a match. Actually, the same match that Arn was in. But also, too, 
there was I, I don't remember the exact circumstances of it. Brian Pillman was actually allowed to show up and wrestle back when he was fr- flying Brian wrestle a match with Shane Douglas. I can't remember if they tagged together or they, or they wrestled against each other. But there was there wasn't like Brian's first time there. So like that that should be noted as well. But at this time, like he's considered to be a WCW wrestler showing up in ECW against their wishes because he's moving so erratically and you don't know what's going on. And it's this whole idea of we don't know 100 percent of what's going on. And anytime you get a crowd where it's like we don't know 100 percent of what's going on, that's where the magic is. You just need 5 percent doubt that this isn't real. This isn't happening. This He didn't just walk in through the door and say, like, put me out there, you know, and, and force him to, to, to go out there while he still has a contract with WCW, especially with, like, some of the stuff that was going on with, like, Cactus Jack showing up with the WCW tag belts one time. Like, there was this weird thing that was brewing and almost like the, the culmination of it was, like, Brian Bowman just appearing and, as a fuck you to WCW and... It was just this this weird thing. And it's it's funny that you bring up Joey Styles. And it's kinda I was gonna bring this up a little bit later, but I think it kinda works into the mysteriousness of this whole whole angle and this whole thing that's going on. This is a story that doesn't get talked about a lot. It, but it's the thing I always think of when people talk about like this loose cannon thing, such a genius. I remember Joey Styles telling a story. They they used to film a lot of the promos at Paul Heyman's parents house because Paul Heyman lived with his parents and like the editing studio was in the basement of his parents house and and they filmed a lot of promos and according to Joey Styles when they were filming promos like actually like the the, the one where he was like butt naked like smoking a cigarette on like a cigar on the couch I think that was like Paul Heyman's family couch <laughs> like I guess when they were filming some of those Brian Pillman took a shit on the floor of like Heyman's family home <laughs> And Joey Styles was like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, after he said that, <laughs> he, he was just like, nope, he's not a loose can. He's just a fucking asshole. Like, it's the loose anus, Brian Pillman. Well, and the thing is, like, was he just like a guy that like, and we, you know, he had his struggles with alcohol and drugs. Was this just a guy that was out of control, legit, and was trying to justify it because it was a wrestling angle? Or is he, like, really fucking with people in such a high degree and really going out of his way to really piss people off? Or is it a combination of somewhere in the middle there where he really is out of control and using this wrestling angle to justify the times that he's going off the rails and and knows that and thinks it's fun to fuck with people in such a way? But to me, like, hearing that story either accentuates his crazy or downplays is crazy, but I feel like it, it, it adds like a weird dimension to it that now you know even less about what was going on at that time, even less about what was going on in his mind, and makes it maybe a bit more terrifying and a bit more riding of the edge that, you know, you, you wouldn't normally expect. It absolutely solidifies, or like dissolves, I guess, if you were on one side or the other, was he being legitimately crazy or not? Uh, but at the same time, you got to think, what if he just had a one accident <laughs> and he's sitting there looking at this shit and he's like, they're going to think I'm really fucking crazy. They're going to think I couldn't find the bathroom. I don't, 
I'm just going to lean into it. It's part of the character. All right. <laughs> I mean, but that, but then that goes back to what I was saying, that he's like, I, I will use this wrestling angle to make up for my bad behavior, my crazy behavior. That I get to act however I want and shit on, some, shit on the floor and not care. Let's see what I can get away with. What if you just heard how much people. of a dick Paul Heyman was <laughs> and he was just doing it for the boys? Well, maybe. Who knows? So Pillman's contract with WCW was coming to an end. So he's in a negotiation war with them. He's on ECW TV teasing a massive feud with their guy, Shane Douglas. Also talking to WWF at the time, who is very interested in buying him up. He has the three biggest companies in the fucking world in the palm of his hand. And then everything gets fucked up. April 15th, 96, Pillman was going 70 and a 45 in his Hummer, fell asleep, runs off the road, hits a tree stump. He's thrown from the vehicle. He just shatters his fucking ankle so bad that it was his toes were facing his ass. His face was crushed. He om- he should have died. And you're a professional athlete on the verge of finally cashing in, of finally hitting the fucking lottery. And it's just gone in a second. And this is the thing, too, you, where you have to question, is he just out of control at this time? And a lot of guys, like you talk about a lot of the stuff. In ECW, we we laugh we laugh about all the vignettes where he's in the restaurant and said, uh, "This order's for Mr. Jester," and that's clearly a dig at Gary Jester, you know, like raise the cook and the thing. And those are all laughable things. But also, too, he showed up at a show and was sitting front row and was yelling shit at Shane Douglas. And Shane was like, "Well, fuck it, I'm gonna go over and hit him." And they agreed that that was gonna happen and they were gonna go over and hit each other. Well, out of nowhere, fucking Brian picks up a baby, and Shane almost hits a fucking baby. <laughs> Like, it changed. Like, what the fuck, dude? You knew I was coming, and you pick up a fucking baby? What the fuck is wrong with you? And, like, now he's, like, getting in a car wreck. And and even, too, like, people thought he was, like, faking the car wreck. He's, he was so far down the rabbit hole. You know, people talk about, like, working your way into a shoot. I mean, and I think we even talked about this with, with other episodes, like the New Jack episode. Like, you start saying something and saying a lie over and over again, and it becomes a truth. And with him, he was always trying to push it always to the extreme. You know, he did that in ring with his body and his work. And now all of a sudden he's got to do it with his with his angle and his craziness. And he's got to keep pushing it over and over and over again. And you kind of become that character. And to him, that character was a guy that got messed up and got behind the wheel, which is terrifying. He could have hurt somebody other than himself. And that's the scary part. And... You're like, yeah, how could he do this? Well, a guy picks up a fucking baby in the middle of a wrestling show and almost causes it to get fucking hit. Like, just was really out of fucking control. And, yeah, I mean, it, it it's sad. He loses out on his paycheck, and people talk about that a lot, but he's lucky he didn't hurt somebody else in this recklessness. And maybe this was the thing that made him realize how far he took us. Maybe this was the culmination of what he was getting to. This was his running out in the middle of the Super Bowl. Like, next level crazy. This car accident realized, oh, fuck. Like, I have pushed this so far, and the rubber band finally broke. That's what this is, is, is that moment. And thankfully, he was he didn't hurt anybody, and thankfully, he survived. There is that line of doing a bunch of crazy shit, a lot of dangerous things. And some of it putting other people in danger. And it's a very, very fine line. But I'll be damned if this shit is not entertaining. 
like the stuff that oh, the man. stuff that he's doing, the loose cannon stuff, and like imagining being a smart mark in that time, be losing your mind in a way that probably those people hadn't since they saw Hulk Hogan when they were kids. Like that's it was putting a spark back into wrestling. It's just a shame that he was putting himself through so much that his uh, demons were kind of causing him to lose control. I mean, his demons were able to be hid. Yeah, in this thing. That's the thing. They were able to be hidden in, in, in all of this. But, you know, I can't disagree with you. It's some of the most exceptional work. Uh, I mean, I, to this day, the image of him doing the promos in the restaurant and he was like signing, he was signing a check and he was signing an autograph. And he was just like, I'm not crazy. And he looks at right at the camera, dead eye, and is just stabbing himself with a fork right in the fucking arm. You couldn't take your fucking eyes off of it. It was mesmerizing. As are most train wrecks. Every second. Yeah, and it, he, that's what he was creating, was, was a train wreck. And you can't control that for, for long. But in the midst of that, he made some amazing art mm-hmm. that it tends to happen. When people are that out of the control, is there is great art involved? In that shooting that. star that burns the brightest burns out the fastest. Yep. So luckily for Pillman, WWF was in a gambling mood, and they decided to offer him a contract anyways. And you have to think it was a fraction of what he could have got without the wreck. A fracture, if you will. They did the press conference, and uh, I think P- Pillman shows some like genuine emotion because I mean he literally he had his life just poofed out of existence a few months before this, and luckily they I mean almost as a sign of fucking compassion WWF uh, signs him. He makes his first appearance at King of the Ring '96, but as he was still recovering, Pillman started working as a commentator, and then he would get kind of thrown into this Stone Cold Bret Hart feud. Austin had been calling out Bret Hart for some time and Bret did a thing where he was coming back. So Pillman interviewed Austin on October 27th, 96's Superstars. In reality, Pillman's ankle hadn't healed properly. So the doctors were going to have to fucking re-break it and reset it and start all the way over. And this led to the interview with Stone Cold where... Austin uh, beats him down, does the whole foot in the chair, stomp on the chair. Yep. Any time I've ever heard people do that, they was like, you know, do the fucking Brian yeah. Pillman, you know, because we got to add fucking to it because <laughs> we're pro wrestlers. Do the fucking Brian Pillman, Pillmanize it. Like, that's what it's referred to. You know, you either Pillmanize the arm, Pillmanize the neck, Pillmanize the leg, whatever it is. It's always like, that's what it's referred Jim to. Jim Cornette was talking about how there's a way you can use the chair like that that won't hurt the other person. What was he talking about in the dark side of the ring? Well, that's the way that he did it is you, you put it in like that. It doesn't hurt because you can stomp the chair in a certain way and how it collapses. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Because yeah. if you stomp it one way, it will close it for real. And if you stomp it the other way, it's just like hitting the seat, I guess. And it's straight. Yeah, all exactly. the force goes into the mat. Yeah. With Brian legitimately on the shelf with his uh, new foot surgery, they still wanted to get into this uh, stone cold angle. So here comes November 4th, 1996, (laughs) Monday Night Raw, and just the infamous clusterfuck that this would all be. Oh, I remember watching this kid and being (laughs) being 
fucking glued. Fuck, I, I shouldn't have loved what Vince Russo did with wrestling <laughs> as much as I did as a child. Fuck, anytime that it was like stuff outside the ring, like that was just fucking weird and shit like that, was just really intriguing to me. Like seeing these guys outside of the ring, like always fascinated me because they were larger than licensed individuals. If I just saw them in the ring and just do their thing, like, yeah, that's great and cool. But then when they would do stuff like backstage or in the real world, and like breaking into somebody's home <laughs> and the calling of the cops and then the then the real cops got called because everybody knows like Brian Pillman's like there and it felt so visceral and real and the the whole pulling out of the gun thing was like holy shit what's what what's going on and I felt like it was like I feel like this was like a typical like yeah, 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 we're going to get to him and he's going to pull a gun out. But then nobody thought of like, okay, well, how are we going to land this bird? <laughs> like the end really didn't make a lot of sense. Like I feel like there was more thought put into the, the empty arena match where Terry Funk got the wood out and then tried to take Lawler's eye out and then Lawler kicked the wood and hit Terry's eye. And Terry was like, my eye, my <laughs> eye. You know, like it wasn't like a situation where Pillman shot the gun and then it ricocheted and a piece of gravel got in Stone Cold's eye and he had to go with an eye patch. And then we built to like take your eye match or something like that. Both these men have been crippled over this Prosthetic eye on a pole match. uh, Something to where it's like both these men have been crippled out of this feud and injured and maimed that we got to put it in a steel cage or something along those lines. Like, Like nobody use this as a way to get to something else. It's like, oh yeah, he's just going to pull a gun. He shot and then he left and then we'll never bring this up again. Uh, although I'm sh- I'm sure you probably wanted to get away from something this nasty and weird <laughs> as fast as it happened, but I would have liked to seen where how it was all going to play out, but I don't know if it really was meant to play out any further than what we saw. So it was interesting. It was weird and it felt like cops for sure. So storyline wise, that was something I wanted to touch on with it. It made sense that the cameras were there for once. Not so much the ones on Stone Cold, but like sometimes you see backstage stuff or stuff out in the world and it's like, why exactly in in the yeah. world of wrestling is this camera here? But since they were interviewing Pillman at his home, it made sense that that one was there and that that helps things a little bit. Yeah. It, it just make it feel not as hitting you over the head with you know this is a, a show and i don't know i don't know if that was live no it, it was mm. it was Pritchard, okay conrad asked bruce why they didn't just tape it so that's nice polished bam 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 yeah no i see i because this is why i bring it up i don't know what conrad would think it would look better if it was polished i don't want to put words in his mouth maybe polished is the wrong word but where they could put a button on it so it, this is live is is the point i, I don't want to put words in okay well well well, well, good. Well, good. Because I feel like it comes off better live. And I, I think anybody that thinks differently, if I had to do the ring rental for the Matt Hardy deletion match with Bray Wyatt at Matt Hardy's house. And they spent hours planning it out. Like they had Vince in Connecticut watching the feed of everything and producing it over and over and over again. And they were there almost to the point that they had to cut some stuff because they were losing the light. And where the final deletion went for impact, they just kind of had some ideas. They went out and they did it and they just filmed it all in one night and it was a bit more seamless. If you give Vince an opportunity to go over shit over and over, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. It's going to get too overproduced. It's going to feel overproduced. It's going to feel too polished. It's not going to have that same feel 
and you're not going to get to the point that people believe it so much that they call the cops. Like, I'm all for it being as it is because it's this very unique, weird thing. I get why you don't do it. <laughs> but at the same time, too, like, fuck is it crazy. Holy shit, I'm glad it exists. But I hope nobody ever fucking does anything close to that ever again. My favorite thing is Brian goes, when Austin 316 meets Brian 9mm Glock and he pulls out the gun and he fucking cocks it, I'm going to blast him straight to hell. And then, and <laughs> on the network, it cuts straight to Todd Pettengill with Milton Bradley Karate Fighters Tournament. <laughs> it's like it couldn't be a worse fucking cut to. I mean, it just goes to show like the weirdness of yeah. that time. They were trying to transition to something else. They were still the, this. They still had a contract with Milton Bradley. Yeah, exactly. like. So they obviously had to do a lot of uh, damage control and uh, apologizing for this segment. But it worked. Bad publicity is good publicity, etc., etc. Uh, it wasn't long after uh, WrestleMania 13 that Pillman would join the Hart Foundation, which is fun. You know, so this old Stampede crew back together again. In uh, May of 97, over a year after his accident, Pillman slowly started to get back into the ring, first in dark matches and house shows, then making his first TV match at Shotgun Saturday Night versus Tony Williams. Then he get into a, uh, a tag match, and I think they they do this a lot where he can have that crutch, that tag partner or two or three, because he's clearly not as mobile. But he has a tag match with Jim Neidhart, making his in-ring debut on Raw against LOD 526-97. On uh, July 6, 97, they had In Your House 16, Canadian Stampede. And this was in Canada during this heated big feud with Stone Cold and Brett, America versus Canada. And we've talked about this match before, but just this environment is just fucking insane. It's also a nice little full circle button for Brian Pillman to just be mega over in canada with his stampede buddies it's like almost poetic well and also too it takes place at the saddle dome which is right there on the grounds of the calgary stampede which is right across the street from the big like barn area where like they'd run the big stampede shows stampede wrestling is because there'd be this big rodeo in calgary and when that big rodeo would be coming through Stampede Wrestling would have a big wrestling show where they'd bring in like Harley Race to defend the world title, Nelson Royal to defend the, the junior heavyweight title, and they would do it at like the barn area, like the Stampede Grounds area. But then also, too, Stampede Wrestling would film their TV just across the street from that in a little like barn area. Like everything you see of like Stampede Wrestling took place in that little barn area like a little it was like a little show area for like cattle but they also ran wrestling shows there and all of that is in the shadow of the saddle dome so all of those guys in in the ring for like the heart family the heart foundation they had all wrestled at the smaller buildings in this complex the building they're at is just casting a shadow onto what their old career was and where they used to yeah. wrestle. Like, that's why that's such an emotional thing. And there were probably people in those seats. They're like, I remember seeing these guys over at the yeah. small building across the street. when we walked right by it when we parked our car. That's the really cool thing about that show that nobody talks about. It's really pretty incredible. It's a great story to it. Then we get into Brian's last ever feud with Goldust. 
They would uh, first meet at 97 SummerSlam in a match where if Brian lost, he'd have to wear a dress for a month or until he won a match. Uh, he lost. He had to wear the dress. In the build up to the next match, things got very heated and personal. Terry, who is Marlena, had a legitimate old relationship with Brian. They threw that into the storyline. And uh, Brian said that uh, one of Goldust's kids was his, which that's... Uh, that's some uh, daytime soap opera shit really getting in there. They'd have a big match at In Your House 17, Ground Zero. The stipulation is if Brian loses, career's over. If Brian wins, he gets Marlena for 30 days. There's a fuck finish. Marlena has a brick in her purse. Brian takes it, wax gold dust, gets the win, gets Marlena. During the next few weeks, Marlena would appear with Brian in his Pillman's Triple X Files, because, you know, X Files was <laughs> a big thing there. Some sexual innuendos uh, with him and Marlena. And I think the logic, the, the thought here was they were going to slowly flip Marlena into a hill. Fuck you, Goat Dust, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Goat Dust wins her back, I'm sure. Because we all know, Nicholas, once you make women property, they just fall <laughs> in love with you immediately. That's what Vin Ru- Vince Russo will tell us about women. If you make them property, they'll fall in love with you and be on your Suck. side. So Marlena was going on the pole? Is that what we could have assumed? I don't even know what the response to that one. I just... I, <laughs> I feel like you should be chastised <laughs> for it, and, and uh, it's also weird. Like I feel like the when you said that Brian said that one of Goldust kids is Brian's kid. I think they're referring yeah. to Dakota, who's also a co-worker of mine. Oh wow, so really? That's real weird too. That's really oh, weird shit. too. And she's such a nice person. She's a great photographer, and like I. I love seeing her interactions with her dad because her dad is legit like the funniest person in the world. And if there's anybody that could have like worked a good in-ring feud with Brian, it's it's Dustin. He's yeah. incredible in the ring and what would have known how to work around everything. And and the few matches that I did see them have, they were like they were like really good and made me really ho- kind of hope like, oh okay. Like looking back at it, it makes me just go, man, like. Good. They could, they could have done some yeah. cool stuff, like something that mm. Brian would have felt proud of, yeah. you know? Goldust, great worker, great gimmick. Funny motherfucker, just, God, he's the funniest. He is deceptively the funniest person in wrestling. That feud is going to come to a stop. Brian's last match, his last TV match is October 4th, 1997, Shotgun Saturday Night. He beat the Patriot by DQ because Goldust runs in, you know, still in that feud. Then we get to October 5th, ninety seven. Brian was supposed to wrestle Dude Love at In Your House 18 Bad Blood, but uh, he never showed. Him and Brett were running late. Brett gets there, and they ask, you know, is Brian on your plane? He's like, nah, it's just me, eh? It's just me, eh? <laughs> Don't let me think we're going to glaze and let you glaze over that, all right? Has like, anyone questioned Bret Hart? It's a little little strange. He had to hang why back. Are we, why, why, why are we coming up all these jokes right now in the most serious part of the podcast? I, I regret we, everything, though. Oh, we're like, man, what a great innovator. But let, let's make let's put all of our jokes in real fast because we're getting it's to the sad. end, guys, we're if you didn't know. Got to get my shit in. <laughs> I get it. Both of you guys are comics, so when you get uncomfortable and you get nervous, your reaction is to make a joke. I get it. I was the funniest person at my grandmother's funeral. <laughs> I know how it is, but that's not a brag you make. (laughs) All right, so Brett gets there. Uh, It turns out Brian's not on his plane. So there's a little controversy here because Brian had his addiction issues and he had wrecked some cars. 
he had a little heat going on right now with JR because of a, uh, a, a drug test. So they didn't quite know what was happening. They ended up contacting the hotel that he was staying at. And he had been found dead that day at 1.09 p.m. Central Time. And Brian Pillman was dead at 35 years old. Everyone immediately thought OD. That was not the case. I mean, the dude had his fucking ankle disintegrated. He was on some painkillers. But this is the same heart disease and heart attack that killed his dad. And just a fucking brutal pro wrestling tragedy. Yeah. I'm sure that the the life he lived did not help. Yeah, for sure. Push off the heart attack at all. But man, he like like I said earlier, that shooting star that shined the brightest burn out fast and he had a hell of a time. Final thoughts on flying Brian Pillman. So I didn't get to see a lot of Brian Pillman. I didn't see any Brian Pillman, really, uh, because I didn't start watching wrestling until six years after he died. But being able to go back and look through this and, like, you always see the the gun promo, but being able to see his evolution through the Hollywood Blondes and into the Loose Cannon and the different things that he did, it's amazing to see somebody manifest a character the way that he did. Because what you see in his early matches, he's almost devoid of any character whatsoever he's a solid wrestler but bringing out that character and showing who he can be was what made him really unique and is really interesting to be able to go back and watch that manifest so i mean obviously anybody that's listening this probably saw the dark side of the ring and i feel like the most heartbreaking thing about that is when they were talking to jim ross and the, the part about him doing commentating and Jim Ross was like, man, you could be like this generation's Jesse, the body Ventura. If you just like really work at commentating because your vocabulary is so broad. You're so brilliant. You're a great talker. Like you got a very unique voice. Like you could be something special here. But Brian just wanted to wrestle, you know? And like, it's like a weird spot I'm in. Like I got this good job that's like outside of the ring, but like, ah, I still want to wrestle. Then like at the same time too, I'm kind of like, ugh. There's no guarantee I'll be able to do that the rest of my life. Or, like, working for merch, I can do that the rest of my life. So I, I got to kind of focus on that, you know. And, and you're like, ah, oh, am I compromising my dream? And I'm sure these are conversations that Brian had where, like, it's just, it's sad that he couldn't just see commentating as, like, oh, well, maybe this is my path now. Maybe this car accident was the thing that got me to this place and got me this opportunity to commentate. And maybe I can go about it and attack it the way I did my wrestling career. And from the little bit I saw of him commentating, I think he could have been very unique, original, and could have been that generation's Jesse Ventura. And and people would be saying, like, oh, well, who's going to be the next Brian Pillman on commentary? Like, he was had such a, a vast vocabulary and was always trying to use words that were different. And maybe that was the thing that would him out of his funk and he could find happiness in that and realize well you know i won't be able to be the best i can in the ring but man i'll be able to be the best commentator and maybe that's the thing that turns his life around and that he could be there for his his kids and i'm good friends with like his son i'd say like i I like me and brian get along brian Pillman jr get along pretty well and i really I wish he could have those moments that I, I see other wrestling dads have, like Taz and Hook. Like, I, I'd love to see, like, Brian Pillman Sr., like, fuss over 
Thelman Jr. and be like, hey, you know, don't forget to do this in the ring. And, and Brian Jr. going, I know, Dad, okay. And he's like, I don't know. I just love you. I just want you to do well. I just want to do, like, have those interactions. Like, I think those would be, would be something special, you know, more so than getting a match with Shawn Michaels for the WWF title at SummerSlam or whatever could have been if he was 100%, you know, having the ability to make a difference in wrestling and be able to contribute and shape it and mold it and do more creative stuff and help other people have more creative stuff, you know, could have, could have been a great contribution, but you know, the whole thing of like, if you're not wrestling, you don't mean anything. I really wish he would have got over that and we could have got more Brian Pillman. It's crazy how very successful he was, very respected, very accomplished. And he's still this massive. What if, in, in pro wrestling like he died on the bubble of the attitude era being one of the edgiest coolest button pushing gimmicks in the history of wrestling in an industry that was about to magnify all those things he was never gonna be flying brian again with his injury but goddamn on the mic just unleashed in the attitude era it would have been just insane and another thing is the mark he left. He shook up the entire industry. He only wrestled for 11 years. And one of those years, he wasn't, he was like out. That's, that's just a short amount of time to leave this big of a mark. Today, everyone and their mom has a tope suicida. Everyone has a flippy shit. But it's guys like Owen, Dynamite, Eddie, X-Pac, and Brian fucking Pillman simmering in the in the 90s for what wrestling is today so if you like anyone anyone on an AEW show anyone that's not 610 400 pounds you gotta appreciate Brian Pillman because he he took the bullet he overcame this big man only bullshit he was a pioneer in breaking the fourth wall and blending reality it's just it's fucking crazy everything this man did and you talk about him as a commentator, he could still be chugging away as just one of the greats, as someone who, who could be training. I mean, uh, he's a really big loss. And just to the sport and obviously to his family, just uh, fucking brutal, man. But all right. That is uh, Brian Pillman's Tim Bell pod. You guys got anything before we get out of here? Uh, nothing really. Just uh, happy to be a part of this. Uh, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter at Tyler W. Wood, I appreciate it. Uh, if I get up to a thousand followers they might let me stay on for the next season <laughs> yes yeah, so we it's very dependent upon that you follow tyler on social media because we only want influencers <laughs> on this program hence why we we said that we need somebody who's at least close to a thousand we can't have you on here if you're any one of these comics that are like talking about what bookers need to be doing when you only have 400 <laughs> followers we need you to but we can't have we can't have you having 200,000 followers and getting too many eyeballs on this show because i might get fired <laughs> i don't know I, 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 we we talk we talk about a lot of my coworkers back when we last did the show i was like oh ft dub now if i say ft dub one of my coworkers is going to slap me with a lawsuit so like i don't I don't know how this is all going to work yet. So support AEW. Uh, <laughs> buy, buy something for shop AEW. Buy something at the merch stands. It, it helps out a lot. If you see me, give me a fist bump as if I'm Psycho Sid coming out to Survivor <laughs> Series in New York. Whatever you whatever you want to do, I'm out there at Manscout Manning. I have a pro wrestling tea store because uh, I work with Ryan a lot now with everything AEW related. So 
Um, figure the least I can do is make him print T-shirts. I literally uh, like every every T-shirt you you buy from my pro wrestling tea store. Ryan Ryan Barkin himself is making each one of those tees. So that's what he promised me, and he wouldn't let me down. Follow us at Tim Bell Pod everywhere. Patreon.com slash Tim Bell Pod should be up and chugging along by now. And uh <laughs>